In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Christos anisti, alitos anisti, Christ is risen, truly is risen. Welcome, everyone. Today is the second Sunday after the Holy Resurrection, after which the church celebrates the Holy 50 Days. As we know, Christ stayed with the apostles for 40 days, like we talked about last week, and then ascended to heaven before sending us the Holy Spirit um, 10 days later in the Pentecost. In other words, we celebrate the beginning of the new life, the new heavenly life, which is made possible by his holy resurrection. Our loving Lord um, gives us all that we need to follow him to eternal life. He gives us himself, of course. So the readings of today and the next three weeks to the ascension, leading up to the ascension, speak of some of the great I am's that Christ spoke. Today, as we just read, he says, I am the bread of life. Next week, which is the third Sunday of Pentecost, he says, I am the living water. And on the fourth Sunday, he says, I am the light of the world. And on the fifth Sunday, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He is the beginning of the journey to heaven, the journey itself, the nourishment along the journey, um, the light that makes the journey clear, and the destination of the journey. He is all in all. So today's reading from chapter 6 of the Gospel according to St. John is in the context of Christ performing the great miracle of feeding the very large multitude of people with only five loaves and two fish. It's a great miracle. We read it uh, many times throughout the year on the Coptic church calendar. And the people thought they hit like the jackpot. They thought that Christ would just simply give them free food, an endless supply of food, having their eyes and desires fixed on only that earthly food. So Christ redirects their attention and gently rebukes them to the more important food, which is the heavenly food, saying, do not labor for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you because God the Father has set his seal on him. But they still insisted on the earthly food and the earthly power and the earthly uh, desires, trying to provoke him to some sort of competitive debate, saying that Moses gave them manna from heaven. What will you give us? And God, because he loves to honor his saints, did not belittle what Moses did. But he did say, um, because it's true, right? God did provide Moses and the Jews with that earthly bread that fell from the sky for 40 years during their stay in the desert. But this was a regular type of bread that the people ate for the nourishment of their body, but then they got hungry once more. And later in that same chapter, Christ reminds everyone that they who ate of that manna, that earthly food, which came from the sky, um, they ate it, but it was just bread and that um, they eventually died. But what he is offering is that bread from heaven, not just from the sky, but from truly from heaven, um, which gives eternal life. So it fell from the sky as a symbol that that bread, which would come later, would be that type of bread that comes from heaven, which is, of course, himself, uh, that he would descend from heaven and give us that bread, which leads to eternal life. The true bread, of course, which is the Eucharist, which is uh, he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Once convinced of that superiority of that bread compared to that of the manna, they asked for this bread, saying, Lord, give us this bread always. Of course, their mind was still earthly. They still uh, felt it was a type of earthly bread that gave them also eternal life. And Christ tells them that he is the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. 
that everyone who sees the Son and believes on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So not just those who believe in him, but those who see him and believe in him. And of course, we see him in the Eucharist. You can say that chapter 6, according to St. John, um, of the Gospel according to St. John, included the passages we read today, including those, is one that you will find very clear references to the nature of what the Eucharist is and its marvelous effect on every believer who partakes of them. And we know that he instituted the Eucharist immediately before his death and the cross, right, on the night that he was betrayed. So just two weeks ago, we commemorate the sacrifice of, the Christ, uh, of Christ on the cross, um, our true Passover. Now we, part, now we partake of the Passover through communion of his precious body and blood, the Eucharist. We partake of him who is life by nature. The Eucharist has itself the full power of the word of God who is united to it, the full power of his divinity. Um, uh, it's full of, uh, it's, it is the full activity of bringing life to its fullest meaning, which of course is eternal life. So what Christ is promising uh, when we partake of the Eucharist, you know, when we ask, what is Christ really promising to those who partake of the Eucharist? It's simply this, that he will raise those who participate in his holy body and blood to incorruptibility so that they are raised in the last day to eternal life, to be with him, the source of life forever. Because he says, for every time you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you proclaim my death confess my resurrection, and remember me till I come. We remember him, of course, through his actual presence in the Eucharist. On the altar, we partake of the sacrifice that was offered once and for all on the hill of Golgotha almost 2,000 years ago. This Eucharist we partake of is the bread of life. It's life-giving. Just as this same body we partake of is the body that was sacrificed for all on the cross, uh, so many years ago, um, and it was also the body that was resurrected that overcame death and having that source of life that could not be overcome by death. So it is the body that is the first fruit of the resurrection and that we partake of it and we unite with him through that holy body. That same body that suffered on the cross that was resurrected and ascended to heaven. And just like that human nature, which he ascended into heaven, we follow him as he is the first fruits and we are the fruits to follow. We follow his footsteps. It therefore gives life to all the baptized Christians who partake of it. Not just the physical life, but the spiritual life as well. It renews every aspect of our being and renews our relationship to God. Uh, I want to read a quote from St. Cyril of Alexandria that says, therefore Christ, was, therefore, Christ has given his own body for the life of all, and through it, he makes life dwell in us again. For this reason, the body of Christ gives life to those who participate in it. His body drives out death when the body enters those who are dying, and it removes decay since it is fully united with the word of God who destroys death. This is why he says it is the bread of life. It holds that prize of immortality that we may overcome the true death, which is the death, which the, uh, the eternal death, which, of course, is death that's far away from God, right? The eternal distance from God. But when we have that communion inside of us, we have that eternal presence of God inside of us. And, of course, he is the source of life. So even though we may get sick during this life, right? And even though we die in the flesh, it is not the end of the story. 
we will be resurrected in the last day and our flesh will return to us. And more importantly, we will be the source of life in heaven. This is the true life that awaits us. True life has to be understood to be life with Christ, which will be in glory and sanctification and joy and in utter fulfillment. And we pursue and chase after this life, not the life of this world, not the necessarily the health of this world, but the spiritual health, which endures to everlasting life. The, the spiritual um, health that we receive through communion, repentance, participation in the life-giving body and blood of Christ. So the world will throw all sorts of troubles at us from war. And as we're experiencing now to disease from shortcomings of others and the evil that others do to each other. But we respond saying that we have hope in the resurrection and we have the body and blood of Christ inside of us. For the time being, of course, because of this coronavirus, you might be wondering, why is he talking about all this since we're not quite, uh, you know, taking communion just yet. But, um, you know, we're, we are looking for a time when we will be opening the church uh, as appropriate uh, here at St. Basil's and God willing, we will soon. Uh, we do not have such access at this time, though, to that same level as we did before. Uh, even as we slowly look to having the liturgies, uh, the limited liturgies at the right time and when safe to do so, it may take time be, uh, before that happens. Um, but uh, just uh, stay tuned and more information will follow there. But it seems that the apostles and the church fathers, when assembling the liturgies, um, knew not to take this amazing gift that's so full of grace and blessings for granted, not to take it for granted. And that's kind of why I spoke so much about it today is that, you know, we want to never lose sight of its value. And if we are for a time like our fathers before us who were persecuted, uh, both on a personal level or on a, like on a church-wide level, were limited from taking the communion. During this time, we use it to keep that um, amazing gift in front of us, that gift that was so full of glory, um, and that we value it in such a high degree and that we yearn and we groan for it uh, in its absence. And so that when it does come, we may value it even more. And uh, even though we might have uh, loved it before, that our are um, holding it in such high esteem and maybe even greater when we finally do uh, open up the churches on a limited basis, God willing. So contained in the liturgies are many prayers asking for the communion, not taking it for granted like we're entitled to, but asking for it and to be counted worthy of being one with him through the Eucharist. It reminds us that we're not worthy, right? But he gives us, uh, of course, this great grace uh, that he gives it to us even though we're, it's unwarranted and undeserved and we're not worthy of it, but he gives it to us, that amazing gift and that amazing grace. And now that we don't have it, it is sad and to the point of tears that we're not able to partake of it, but we pray for it. So as we're looking at the potential for having these limited liturgies, let, let this time be one of prayer of, for healing and groaning for the communion, um, begging God, as it were, for us to see the Lord in truth and in the presence of the Eucharist and be nourished by his body and blood, which was of course ever victorious against death and against sin. So let's also make it a commitment within ourselves that when, that if we're ever present again with the life-giving mysteries like before, that we never take it for granted, that we're always on time to the best we can to church, that we never miss a liturgy 
um, these things are precious to us. And um, having sometimes when things are taken away, it, it reminds us how valuable something is. In today's gospel, he also says another beautiful phrase. The gospel reading goes on to say that all that the Father has given me will come to me. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. But the fact that they have to come back to him, though, it notes that we were at first cast out. The fact that we have to go back to the Father, you know, who, he who comes to me. If we're coming to him, then that means we were cast out previously. Away from knowing him in faith and love and away from his joy, peace, and security. That's how humanity was before he came. What caused us, of course, to be cast out in the first place? The answer is pride. From Adam and Eve, we tasted from that same cup of pride that Satan drank of when he was cast out of heaven himself. And likewise, they were cast out of paradise. It is the beginning and mother of all sins that separate us from Christ. Pride is the beginning and mother of all sins. St. John Cassian calls pride the most savage beast, fiercer than all other sins, greatly straining the perfect and ravaging with its cruel bite those who are nearly established in the perfection of virtue. So even those who are spiritually mature. It's a constant threat to both the beginner in the spiritual life and those who are more mature and advanced in spirituality. It does not, um, it not only does away with corresp the, its corresponding virtue, but it destroys all other virtues as well. For example, what I mean by that is if, if I lie, I'm not honest. If I lust, I'm not pure. But if I'm proud, then all other virtues also stand at risk. It's the doorway for the crumbling of all other virtues. Therefore, one uh, may see the proud lose other virtues, such as silence, for example. Uh, who is the loudest in the room, right? Who's the one who's uh, showing off in the room? He's the one who has pride. It also threatens wisdom um, through pride, one acts foolish based on, uh, you know, based on his own understanding and he thinks he knows the best, right, without consulting with other. So he loses wisdom. He loses understanding. Um, you always, you've heard the phrase that pride mixed with ignorance, right, is a very devastating consequence, right? If you're ignorant and you're prideful and you act on that, it causes devastating consequences, not just for yourself, but for all others around you as well. Um, it can make you lose your peace with others. Um, they're not going to be peaceful, those who are proud and always think themselves better, right? They're always going to be in conflict with other people. So St. James says in his epistle, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and he will lift you up. Pride makes one a playground of the demons. They see their likeness in the prideful person. They say, hey, this person's just like us. Let's hang out with him and let's play with him. They see their likeness in the prideful. So this is the cause of then being cast out from God's presence. The cause of Satan and his demons, the cause of Adam and Eve to be cast out of paradise, the cause today of losing grace is being prideful. But if we are cast out from his presence through pride, how can we go back into his presence? How do we dwell with him? St. Augustine wrote a wonderful and powerful book, which I uh, encourage all of you to read. It's called His Confessions. In it, he talks about his repentance because um, he led, of course, a sinful life and a heretical life before he returned to uh, the true faith. And, um, you know, 
he it's a really emotional it's kind of reading like when you read this book it's like reading the psalms uh in it he says it's not by our feet or change of place that men leave or return to god it is by change of heart of course it is by change of conduct it is through humility because if by pride we are cast out and that as it were causes distance between us and our creator by humility we can come back into his presence for he says for i have come down not to do my own will but the will of him who sent me he is the teacher of our humility when we compare the humility of christ with the pride of the world and the pride of satan we see a very striking difference i mean it's black and white uh, as far as the difference Christ, although he was in the form of God, he was God himself, he emptied himself and lived in a manger, taking the form of a slave and a humbled servant, um, and he became obedient even unto death, right? Even the humility of the cross, he did for our sake. He sacrificed for all through his humility. And even though he's God and he's worshipped by all the angels and, you know, by the cherubim and the seraphim in great glory, he came and dwelt in a manger and he lived a poor life. His whole life, as uh, we can say, is kind of a passion of Christ. But when we look at Satan, Satan went up to heaven to exalt himself, right? Um, that's why he was cast down. He said, I will be like the most high and I will exalt my throne above the stars. And because of that, he was cast down. So Christ descended for our sake. Satan ascends him, tries to ascend himself uh, for his own sake. And we see that striking difference. Christ, although he was rich, he became poor so that we would be made rich through his poverty. Uh, amazing paradox, right? Um, but on the temptation on the mount, Satan says, mine are the kingdoms of the earth and their glory, and I give to whom I will. Uh, we can see the spirit is just black and white with, with regard to what Christ did and what the spirit of the world says. In the world, we have kings of the earth and the presidents and the armies. They all fight um, to establish their throne and to maintain their throne. They're willing to die and to kill and to sacrifice everything so that they may gain or keep their earthly thrones. But Christ, as, an, uh, as our king and as our uh, leader, to him who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne. So I also overcame and sat with my father on his throne. What kind of leader uh, would allow others to sit on his throne, of course, except our Lord Jesus Christ. Because he came and emptied himself and came and dwelt among us in the mud so, uh, to do the will of his Father, which is to save all of mankind. He humbled uh, himself for us through, uh, though, is simply, you know, for humbleness for us is simply to know the truth of the matter, right? That in the height of our strength, that we're nothing and only in him are we made stronger, right? Even in the, if you say somebody's healthy or rich or strong or, you know, eloquent or whatever you can say about a person in the height of his strength, in the prime of his life, all that can be taken away in a second. And we see it many times in, in other people's uh, lives. Um, and even sometimes in our own life. And so we know that humbleness for us is just simply to know the truth of the matter, that in him we have our strength and our stability and we stand by his mercy and by nothing else. Um, in Matthew 11, he says, come to me all you who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me 
for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. He is lowly in heart, and we approach him um, the same way. We approach him in the same manner. Um, in Psalm 36 and in the Egbeya readings, we say, in your light, we see light. In his humility, we see him who himself is humble and lowly in heart. So we get to see him and recognize him and realize his true presence through that humility. When we approach him like this, he will never cast us out, as it says in today's gospel. Only pride, our own pride, can cast us out. We find him in humility, in the manger, on the cross, because he says, um, by no means, he will by no means cast us out because he has come from heaven to do the will of his Father. Um, and that will, of course, is to save us all. This he says, of course, to emphasize that there is no other will than that of God. And the Son does not have a different will than the Father, right? That It shows that unity in divinity between the Father and the Son. That will of God is for us to return to him and to be one with him uh, from, uh, um, from through repentance and through faith and through, of course, the partaking of the Eucharist and the baptism and, and the life-giving sacraments. So from his birth to death, he humbled himself and became acquainted with sorrow and humility. So why did he do this for us? And of course, if you ask even the children this question, why did Christ do all this? We always say that we know why he did this for us, because um, though at first it seems unworthy of God to be brought down from the glory that he had in heaven to the manger and to the cross. But we know as Christians, uh, we know that it is worthy of him when considering his love and humility. We all know the answer that he did this because he loved us. And though we know the answer, it's impossible to fully comprehend this type of love. And what we have is the cross. That cross helps us to realize that um, through, you know, through a very striking um, visual that we understand how much he loved us. And when we see the cross and him hanging on the cross, we get a glimpse of his love for us. But as much as our minds can handle, this cross is there for us and his passion show us this love. Suffering is a clear uh, manifestation of love, right? A husband uh, for a wife, parents for children, uh, friends for friends. We remind ourselves during this, uh, the, the, like the, during the Feast of the Cross and on the Good Friday that the wounds of Christ stand as an eternal sign um, of his love for us, right? Those wounds of Christ will be there forever. When we're in heaven, God willing, uh, we, and we see Christ, we will see those wounds forever, and they will always stand as an eternal sign of his love for us. When we look at an icon uh, with Christ after the resurrection, what do we see? We see the wounds. Um, when we see the saints who see visions uh, of Christ, they, of course, see the wounds of Christ. And when we go to heaven, we will see those same wounds as well. Because on the cross, he says, and if I be lifted up, will draw all men to myself. He will bring everyone closer to him. So before we were cast out, now through the cross, we're able to go closer to him. And we know that through the cross, um, that, that sacrifice that was made for all, that's what we partake of on the, uh, when we participate in the Eucharist, as we eagerly look for that. Our Lord Jesus Christ is then the teacher of, our, uh, of humility. If the Son of God, therefore, humbled himself for our sake, coming down from 
uh, heaven to earth so that those who come to him, he will accept and not cast out. How then can we not be the same towards each other? And if he says that he will not cast out any that come to him, do we, we should ask ourselves, do we cast out any that come to us? Um, it may be a difficult question, but it's, it's a healthy one for us to evaluate. Uh, those who come to us for help, do we think that they're too big of a burden and ignore them? Do we say that, you know, we, we need to store up for ourselves during this difficult time? We need to store up uh, in case we need to use the resources that we have. But if somebody comes to us uh, needing it now, do we follow the example of our Lord who sacrificed everything, what little he had for our sake, uh, so that we can have comfort? Or do we shut it, shut it off? Or if they come to us for forgiveness um, because they wronged us in the past, uh, even if they haven't apologized, but they know that they did something wrong, uh, do we cast them out of our hearts and our minds? And do we cast them out of our presence, holding on to bitterness? Or do we follow the example of our Lord who forgave us our sins and continues to do so even today, putting our sins far from us? St. Cyril of Alexandria says in his commentary on Jonah, uh, the book of Jonah. How could we open our mouths to offer songs of thanksgivings to one of such compassion and goodness? Speaking about our Lord. He puts far from us our inequities. And like a parent showing compassion to his children, the Lord has compassion for those who fear him, for he knows how we were made. Or if they come to us, if others come to us because they're lonely during this time, many are lonely. Do we cast them out because um, they're not in our social circle or because they might be a little quirky? Um, do we cast them out or do we follow the example of our Lord who, even though we're not worthy to be in his presence, brings us to his presence and became, as it were, our best friend uh, in life? As we, we, he was our friend since our youth and continues to be our friend today, our best friend. And greater love has no one than this than to lay down his life for his friends. How do we treat those whom we encounter? That's the question of today. Do we bring them closer to God? Do we offer them comfort uh, following the example of our Lord? Or uh, do we do the opposite of that? Or worse yet, um, when the churches uh, were open and when they open again, God willing, uh, do we cast out any that come to church uh, that God has called to return to, God, uh, to the church uh, even after living a, a life of sin in the past, because our Lord Jesus Christ accepts all and calls the sinners to come back um, and even calls us daily to come back and accepts us to be in the church and makes us worthy to stand in his presence. Are we welcoming to those people? Or do we practice the ways of the world that includes backstabbing, dirty looks, judgments uh, of those who come to church? Uh, it's some things to consider that we should be like our Savior and everything, accepting um, and bringing everyone closer to God. Because the gospel says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up in the last day. Those who approached him in humility will be kept close to him. Those with pride will be cast out far from him. And this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up in the last day. So we see Christ in the Eucharist. We see Christ through humility, as in today's gospel we learn. 
um, we see him on the cross and on the altar in humbleness being present with us. Those who do not know humility, even what it is, will not find him or recognize him or even be aware of his presence. We know the story, the beautiful story of St. Pishoy uh, the, uh, in the monastery who sees Christ. And if you don't know the story, I uh, text me and I'll be glad to tell it to you um, or look it up. The story of St. Pishoy, when all the other monks, um, through their pride, they did not recognize Christ, but he, uh, went, uh, helping, seeing Christ in his humility as an old man trying to walk up the mountain and couldn't, no one else was willing to help. Uh, St. Pishoy helped him and recognized him in humility and recognized him when he saw the wounds of Christ on his feet. It was the wounds of Christ that allowed St. Pishoy to recognize him. So may the wounds of the resurrected Christ heal us um, as we continue to reap the benefits of the cross and the resurrection and uh, in our groaning for the communion again to be opened up soon in our church. Our monument of victory, uh, you know, is the cross and the resurrection and that Eucharist that we partake of. That is the monument of our victory. And may he cause us to be united with him, with the almighty God, to whom be glory forever now and unto the end of all ages. Amen. The love of God the Father, the grace of his only begotten Son, our Lord God and Savior Jesus Christ, the communion and gift of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Depart in peace. The peace of the Lord be with you. I just want to remind everyone that the, a survey was sent to you regarding um, if you were able to partake of limited liturgies uh, when appropriate to do so, that we would do so slowly with a small number of family with social distancing. Um, let me know by responding to that survey, please. Uh, we're going to be closing that survey tonight, um, and tomorrow morning we'll start evaluating what the next steps are. Uh, please uh, do so. It should only take a, a, you know, maybe a minute at the most. God bless you all, and uh, I long for the day where I get to see you face-to-face, -face and we see each other face-to-face. -face. Uh, I miss everyone. God bless you.